Well, good morning, Trinity. How are you today? That's so good to hear. Hey, uh, how many of you were able yesterday to join us for the Trinity Refresh Workday? Could I see your calluses, please? Good for you. I know we all couldn't be there, but yes, they deserve a round of applause. If any of you have pictures from yesterday, please send them to me. We're putting together a, uh, a video for the E! News this week, so all of you can see what was accomplished and those who were there. How many of you serve in any way in the life of Trinity? Could I also see your calluses? Look at that. Folks, take a minute and look around. Isn't that amazing and good? Thank you so much for all of your service. Hey, I'm excited to get into 2 Corinthians 2, but before we do, I want to talk to you about an event that's coming up in three weeks that I hope you can come to. This is for anybody who has served in any way in the life of Trinity this past year. And we're calling it Team Trinity Recharge. Those of you who serve know the incredible joy of seeing lives transformed, of seeing people grow in their faith, of seeing them encouraged in times of crisis, and seeing them just become a part of the body of Christ. You know what that looks like, but you also know how time-consuming and exhausting serving is. It's a lot of work. And so we want to take time to renew your batteries, recharge you, refuel your tank. And this event is designed just for that. It's August 20th from 8 to noon. We're going to be serving a great Costco uh, breakfast. (laughs) We've all had those, haven't we? (laughs) It's going to be good, though. We're also going to take some time just to get to know each other as ministry teams. Sometimes it's easy to become so separate and involved in our own areas that we don't really get to hear what everyone else is doing and meet those people. So we're going to mix it up a little bit. We're really wanting to renew you and recharge you. We're going to have some recharging stations with some topics and speakers who are literally thinking about how can we help people feel a new sense of energy as they serve at Trinity. So this is not designed to be a burden at all in any way. It's designed to be a morning to celebrate you, uh, those of you who are serving. So I hope you can come. Uh, Again, it's for anyone who served in any way here at Trinity this past year. And uh, we're going to take time just to say thank you for all that you're doing. Hey, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, would you open them, whether it's your app or your physical Bible, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And as you're doing that, uh, let me remind you, Paul writes to the Corinthians because they're uh, a church in conflict. They're a church that has been struggling in their relationships, and he loves them so much. In fact, he literally in this passage calls them his joy, even though they've been attacking him in a variety of ways. And so as he writes to them, he gives them some very specific things that he wants them to think about in terms of how do you handle conflict in a church. Uh, There were some lawsuits, one believer against another in this church in Corinth. And he he talks to us about, you know, what, what do we do when one church attendee is offended with another to the point of going to court? Uh, There were some Corinthian Christians who were pointing accusative fingers at Paul and saying, you're an unimpressive speaker. You don't have the the gravitas of an apostle. You're not the kind of guy that we should be following. And, you know, what's the right course of action when uh, a band of believers pushes back against uh, the leaders uh, of their church, the spiritual leaders? What do we do? He also talks to us about how a young man in Corinth, there was a young man who was actually... Uh, making love to his stepmom. 
We find that in 1 Corinthians 5. And, and uh, he says to the church, hey, not only should you be repentant about this, but you're actually celebrating this as a true act of love. You know, what do you do when you have an individual in the church engaging in persistent, unrepentant sin? How do we handle that? What are churches today to do when they find themselves in conflict? And, and by the way, every church has some conflict in it. I don't know of a single church that doesn't. In fact, James writes to us in James chapter 4, and he says, hey, what causes the quarrels and the fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So folks, if you're visiting with us either online or on the pavilion or you're sitting in our service here this morning and you're saying, rats, I thought I was coming to a church without conflict. <laughs> there is no church that exists unless it's dead and then there's no conflict, <laughs> right? But every church that's living has some sense of tension in it. And this is why Paul addresses this. And by the way, I think Trinity is a wonderful place to find friendship and a place to serve and meaning and truth. But folks, we are not perfect. And so we need to learn, how do we handle conflict when it arises? So this morning in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul's going to give us three simple things that we should keep in mind as we think about churches in general and as we think about Trinity and any conflict that we may experience in it. And I want you to look at verses 1 through 4 to start with because it tells us that corrective love always addresses conflict. It doesn't run from it. This is one of his truths. He says in verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now that does sound like running a little bit, but let's keep reading. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I think Paul was experiencing one of those everyday, very real moments when um, conflict was difficult to embrace. You ever felt that way? But it's the human tendency to shrink back from conflict, right? We all feel that. Verse 1 tells us that Paul had made this definite decision not to go back and visit them again because it had been a painful experience when they had pointed the accusing finger at him and nobody had supported him and he had left feeling like the church at Corinth was just falling apart. It's very natural to pull back from conflict when it happens. In uh, our first pastorate, Lisa's in my first pastorate, uh, it was on the coast uh, of Southern California, and, and we had at one point in its life, we'd been there three or four years, we had a lot of folks move down into our area, just for a lot of reasons, work and family and other reasons, but they had been attending a church of a very well-known Bible expositor up north. In fact, if I were to give you his name, and I'm not going to, but if I were, you would instantly say, oh, I know who that is. And they had been attending there for some time, and they came down to our small church and started attending because they really uh, enjoyed the atmosphere of, of kindness and sacrifice and relationship. 
But they had an itch that they wanted to scratch, and that was to continue to hear the same kind of preaching. Slowly but surely, they began to compare my preaching to what they had been used to with this very well-known Bible expositor. And uh, one day I arrived at my office, and there outside of my door was a stack of his commentaries, all of them. <laughs> Anonymously. And I arrived, I looked down, what is this? Oh, what? oh, okay, I think I understand. One of them came to me after a Sunday morning, and, and he had an envelope. He said, hey, Pastor Doug, I, I've signed you up for the week-long, you know, preaching course. That, that this guy does, and it's fully paid for, which was actually a generous gift, but he never took the time to think, can Doug actually get away from a smaller church ministry and go? And so little by little, they began to, you know, whittle away at, at uh, wanting me to be their former pastor. And they had this belief that, that um, biblical preaching style equaled big, biblical authority. You ever sense that? That this certain style was the authoritative way to, to share the Word of God. And uh, it finally kind of highlighted one week when one of our elders called me up and said, hey, Doug, uh, you and Lisa need to get a babysitter. We have a meeting, especially called meeting at the church we'd like you to attend. And I said, okay, well, what's it about? Well, I can't tell you. Folks, that's never a good sign. <laughs> can't tell you. Okay, well, we got a babysitter and we came. And in the center of the auditorium, they had created a, a you know, circle of, of chairs, maybe about 30. And uh, these folks had all arrived a little bit early, so every chair except for two of them were filled because they wanted this visual impact, I, I think. And so we came in, they said, would you mind having a seat? And we said, sure, what's up? And one by one, they began to share with us how my preaching was deficient how I needed to be more like this person. And didn't you get the commentary set? I said, yeah, I've been using it, actually. I like it. Uh, but we sat there for an hour and just heard a lot of conflicting thoughts. And my poor wife, she's a defender. And I could hear her just starting to boil next to me, you know, <laughs> defending her man. She didn't say a word. She was gracious about it. But uh, it all culminated with one statement and some of you who are old enough will remember this Super Bowl ad. It was by Wendy's. And it was called, Where's the Beef? <laughs> right? Some of you remember that one? Yeah? Okay. We're not going to ask for hands, but uh, <laughs> I remember it. And they said, this is all about where's the beef? And you had just seen this ad in the Super Bowl. In fact, I have it for you this morning. It's going to look a little old, but I want you to see it. And then I want to talk to you about what they meant. So, guys, can you run it? It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. <laughs> so when one of them said, well, this is really about where's the beef, I mean, we got it. And, and what we were hearing from them was, you know, we don't see any meat in your messages. Uh, where, where is the deep, rich spiritual truths that we're so used to getting up north? Um, in fact, we don't even think you're listening to us. 
And uh, that was a very painful moment in our first pastorate. It was interesting, none of the people who were strong supporters of the ministry were there. Um, they were people who were thrilled by the life and, and vitality of this church. But folks, I can assure you that getting up the next morning and going into the office was not an easy thing to do because you could feel this tension. And I tell this story for, for two reasons. One is I want you to understand, Lisa and I know what it means to feel conflicted. And secondly, we need to know how to handle those moments, don't we? Because if we don't, they become open doors for supernatural invasion. So how do we handle conflict? Well, let me, from my own personal experience, share with you something that I learned, and then I want to get into this passage. Number one, in my heart, when we think about conflict, is you have to draw close. Now, that sounds crazy, right? You want me to get close to the person who's conflicted with me? That doesn't sound like a great idea, but let me explain it to you. When you draw close, rather than be distanced, you can actually hear their thoughts and ask good questions. Because listening is really that you want to understand. It's only when you're close rather than distanced that you can begin to understand their pain and their desires. And folks, it's only when you're close that you can keep Satan from separating you. When there's space between us, Satan loves to step in. In fact, this passage is going to tell us that. So, Paul looked at their relationships with him and he said, I've got to draw close. I can't come back right now. It would be painful for you and I, but I do want to come back. And I want to uh, engage with you and work out the conflict. And, and folks, this is something that's not just for spiritual leaders. It's for all of us. Notice in your Bible, we'll put it on the screen, Galatians 6.1. says, brothers and sisters, if you see anyone, any brother or sister who is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I love that. Restore them, but it has to be gentle. Keep watch over yourselves lest you too be tempted to be harsh, to seek punishment instead of restoration. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Be willing to step into it. Bear each other's burdens. Gently seek restoration. So can I ask you this morning, have you ever felt at odds with anyone in a church, past or present? Have you ever been hurt or hurt others by offenses given or taken? Do you know of anyone in a church who is caught in a sin? I think God is encouraging us this morning to address the conflict rather than run from it. To be people who step into the gap and say, I want to hear, I want to understand, I want to love you in the name of Christ. So corrective love always addresses conflict. It doesn't run from it. Number two, in verses 5 through 10, Paul says corrective love always seeks the growth and the good of others. It's not defensive. It's seeking to be reaching out for the good and growth of others. Have you ever noticed when we're in conflict with someone, I think the natural human tendency is to um, ask the others to make things right, uh, for them to pay for the pain I've felt. You ever notice that? After all, we were the ones hurt, right? 
But there's a couple things wrong with that. One is it places all the focus on me. When I went through that experience at our first church, the where's the beef, I mean, I, I felt offended because I knew the word of God was what was most important, not the style in which it's presented. And so the tendency was to look at how I had been hurt. But the moment I do that, when I focus my Christian life on me, that's never a good thing because this, this is not about me. Second of all is sin impacts people in general, a lot of people. Look at James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it impacts us ourselves in pain and injury, but it can also impact the entire church or all of God's people. Think about this. Did David's sin with Bathsheba affect only him? No. Ask her murdered husband. Did, did Lot's decision to go and live in Sodom and Gomorrah affect only him? No, it didn't. As a result, his wife developed a severe case of uh, salt poisoning and petrification. <laughs> right? It had an impact on her. Did Achan's decision to steal some beautiful but forbidden things from the city of Jericho impact only him? No. Ask his family as the earth opened up and swallowed all of them. Men, women, children, pets, all of them. Sin has a broader impact. And look at verses 9 through 11. This is Paul's main point here. He says, when we have sin in the camp and we run from it, we don't address it, and when we forget that conflict is designed to be for the good of others, what happens is Satan has an opportunity. Look at 9 through 11. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. I'm doing this for your good, for your growth. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. The Greek says that we would not be unmindful of his mind, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul pulls back the curtain of the church stage, and he says, I want you to see behind the curtain the supernatural reality that's going on. And what you'll see is Satan hovering at the edges of the stage, at the corners of the church life, waiting. You'll see him eagerly whispering his script aloud to himself as he schemes and he concocts evil against God's church. And we'll observe him watching and, and waiting for interpersonal conflict to erupt in the church so that he can widen the gap of friendship and, and he can steal away the joy, productivity, and peace. The elders and I are reading a, a book right now together. We read a couple of chapters a month. It's called Soaring uh, Between Pastorates. And it's by Tom Hughes, who is a guy who has helped a lot of churches make the transition between pastor leaving and pastor next. And in there this week, we actually came across a, a section. I want to have it on the screen for you to read. But as, as we have, as elders have been thinking about the health of a church and pushing toward vitality and uh, renewal, this struck us. 
It's on page 42, and it says, Unattended issues, conflict where you run from it, hinders the fruitfulness of a church and the tenure and effectiveness of pastors. If problems are allowed to fester, they will crush your vitality and vibrancy. Churches can be functional but lifeless, like shrines. If yours is full of religious activity and lacking spiritual vitality, it could be that Jesus has not been invited in. Remember, just as Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart in Revelation 3, wanting to come in, he is also knocking on the church's door and wants to come in. God speaks to us during disruption and disequilibrium to get our attention. Would you read that with me again, or just in your hearts? I think it's a key part of this. God speaks to us during disruption and disequilibrium to get our attention. God wants to have us listen carefully to him during this time. He may be banging on the cabin door and shouting out, wake up, folks, it's time for contrite hearts, confession, and repentance that will restore God's favor on your ministry. Is that powerful or what? And it caught the attention of the elder board for several reasons. First of all, as Trinity spiritual leaders, they are seeking to apply uh, this and, and the word of God to their own hearts. And I've been watching this for several months now. And, and they're working at being more humble and confessional in their relationship before God. In fact, at the very first elder meeting, when they were thinking about me coming as the interim pastor, they invited me to an elder meeting. And I arrived, and you know how typical elder meetings go. If you've ever been in leadership, there's a lot of business. And, and you're constantly working through all of the agenda. Well, these, these guys didn't start that way. They spent a full hour in prayer. A full hour in prayer. I've been on elder boards where you spend five minutes. <laughs> and then, boom, you're into it. They spent a full hour praying, and it was... Folks, I, I felt so attracted to these men because they were praying Scripture. They were confessing. They were asking God to change their hearts and the heart of this church. And uh, are these guys perfect? No. They're not. And they shared with me, we've made some mistakes. We've done some things we wish we could undo. And they've been under a lot of stress like a lot of people in the course of church life. But, and, and this is vital, they are confessing and growing. And as opportunity presents itself, they are trying to do more than just business as usual as a church. And that was fantastic. Amen. Second thing is, our church has a lot of great activities and programs going on. Praise God. Those are so vital, so powerful. People are being saved. At the workday yesterday, one of the leaders of the church came up to me and they said, hey, today, one of my small group accepted Christ. Wow, that is fantastic. But we also have to be people who are doing less so that we can walk with Jesus more. Have you ever felt that the church gets so busy you forget why the church is there? And, and I think this is a period of time where God says, I want you to be empowered by his spirit. I want you to live for the kingdom. I want you to engage in spiritual transformation. I want you to grow. Because, folks, when we don't, when we're not repentant, we're not forgiving, Satan comes to knock on the door. And Paul says, we're not unmindful of his mind. We know what he wants, his 
schemes and his desires. He's the father of all lies. He never tells the truth. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. He wants the life and unity of a church sucked out. And his toolbox is packed with the things like resentment and bitterness and discouragement and agitation and division and critical spirits and pride, and you can go down the list. He's got a big toolbox. But thankfully, God has given us two very powerful tools to fight back with. And we see them in 2 Corinthians, by the way, not chapter 2, but verse, or chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you need to turn over to chapter 7. Because this is looking in the rearview mirror. As he gets further into his conversation with them, he pauses in chapter 7 and he looks back at chapter 2. And he talks about this guy in Corinth who has been that irritant in the life of the church who was confronted and now has repented. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And he has told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Look at verse 9. For it is, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. That's the purpose of godly grief, is to restore us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So to defeat Satan, we have to feel a godly grief. We have to feel that, that sense of this isn't right, we shouldn't be here, and move toward forgiveness through repentance. And the second tool is repentance and forgiveness it's so important for us to see this folks because forgiveness and hear this well forgiveness is the only cure for the sorrow and sadness we feel after conflict there is no other cure it's only through forgiveness that our sorrow our grief our sadness can be changed look at verses 6 through 8 this is 2 Corinthians 2 by the way we're back there for such a one as this, this punishment by the majority is enough. So enough of the Corinthians said, Paul, you're right. Gosh, we should have handled this better. Let's address the conflict. Let's not run from it. Let's look out for the good and the growth of this person. And they addressed church discipline in a really positive way. This majority, the punishment, the, the corrective discipline was enough, he says. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is such a beautiful passage. He says, look, the guy for repented. He wants to do the right thing. Don't keep being hard on him. Do two things instead. Number one, forgive him. Now, the New Testament uses a lot of, not a lot, but a couple of key words for forgiveness. The one he uses here is not, not typical. It's not the normal forgive Greek word. The word here is charis. Does that ring a bell? Charis. It's the word grace. 
Be gracious to him. By the way, grace never demands judgment. And that's usually what we want when we've been offended. I want them to pay for what they did to me. But he says, no, I want you to be gracious to him. Don't demand that he make everything right. This is the grace that God gives us. Does he demand that we make everything right? No, he demands that we repent and turn to him for forgiveness. The word comfort, we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's the word parakaleo. Do you remember the sandbags down here? And how a lot of these young men came up and carried my burden? It's the same word here. He says, be gracious to him and then go to him and say, may I help you with something? Man, is that hard? They're the one who hurt me. Why should I be going and helping them? But that's part of God's cure of forgiveness. Be gracious to him, parakaleo, come alongside of him. And he says, this is the cure when we have had conflict. And that kind of forgiveness closes the door to Satan. And isn't that what we want? We don't want Satan involved in our churches today. So I'm going to ask you for, to take just a minute with me and pray. Just as a congregation, silently right now, just bow your head, and I want to give you a few thoughts. This is not to be done corporately in terms of our sharing with each other, but it's between you and God and the Holy Spirit. And God just put some thoughts in my, my heart this week, and they're for me as well, as I think about my life involved with the congregational aspect of God's church. Number one, would you consider, would you consider whether there is anyone you have offended here at Trinity or, or been offended by? When you think of conflict, does someone face, someone's face come to mind? Would you remind yourself that the lack of repentance and forgiveness is the one thing that opens opportunity to Satan, something he loves. And if needed, would you repent in your heart for any possible part you may have played in opening such a door to Satan? Would you offer in your heart undeserved forgiveness to anyone who has hurt you? Grace, not demanding justice, help coming alongside and meeting a need in their life. And finally, would you be willing to prayerfully come alongside that person to help them, love them, and encourage them in whatever way God so directs? And Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers. We know you do. And if there's any relational conflict, Father, that needs to be healed here, would you, through your Holy Spirit, complete in us the repentance and the forgiveness needed, Father, and restore the joy and the love you desire us to have. Amen. Let me give you the last point of Paul's comments here in 2 Corinthians 2. It's verses 11 through 17, and he says, Corrective love persists and always triumphs in Jesus. And I'm really glad he ends here because sometimes when we are involved in conflict and we're seeking to give corrective love, we wonder sometimes, is this going to actually work itself out? 
Look at the text, verse 11. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. So that's the historical moment. Troas was where he had arranged to meet with Titus after Titus had met with the Corinthians. And Paul wanted to know, have they accepted the corrective discipline? Do they feel more restored? Are we back on a joyful relationship? But Titus is not there. And so his feelings continue to be distracting. He's got an open door to preach the gospel, which Paul loved. But inside, he's, he's burdened, he's distracted, his thoughts are drifting back to Corinth. And so he discontinues his ministry at Troas, and he goes to Macedonia. But notice verse 14. Even though he might have been wondering, is Satan winning this moment? Because here's the gospel. People want to hear it. The door is open. But I've got to deal with something else. Paul writes in verse 14. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, I brought with me this morning. There it goes, okay. A mister that Lisa and I use at our home. How many of you like snickerdoodle? (laughs) That's the essential oil this morning. I'll be able to enjoy it here. I'm going to hope that the air conditioning kind of Waps it in your direction. But Paul writes here and he says, Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance, the snickerdoodle of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Your life is not just as a soldier in a Roman triumphal procession, which is the imagery he uses here. Your life is also this aroma that is spreading through the triumphal procession. And he says it's an aroma of the knowledge of God. So what we know about God, our experience with God, our our relationship with God is what is communicating to those around us. And he says for those who are being saved, it's an aroma of salvation and of life. But to those who are dying, those captive soldiers in the processional, it's a a fragrance of death. And notice in verse 16, he says, who is sufficient for these things? What Paul wants us to know, and guys, can we throw the slide up there of the procession? What he wants us to know is that Christ has triumphed over all conflict, and he did that at the cross. It is finished, he wrote. And isn't it also interesting at the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't seek justice. He sought grace. When a Roman general was given a procession through Rome, it was only on the condition of three things. He always had to do three things to earn it. Number one, he had to have fought in a foreign war and defeated the enemy. Number two, he had to kill over 5,000 of the enemy's soldiers. So it was a significant victory. And number three, he had to gain new territory for the emperor. 
If he met those three conditions, guess what? He got this procession. Now, this is a reenactment here. But at the front of the procession, they would have the Roman priests with the incense burning. So you'd have the fragrance floating back. Guess who was behind the priests? The captured soldiers, those who were defeated in battle. And the procession would take them all the way to a place called Circus Maximus, which is where they would fight wild beasts and die. So they were doomed in this procession. And as they smelled this fragrance, all they could smell was death and defeat. Behind the, sol behind the uh, defeated soldiers came the conquering general on a horse or a chariot, and behind, behind him all of the troops who had been a part of that victory. And they could smell this fragrance. And to them, it was a fragrance of life and victory. And Paul says, at the cross, Christ gained the victory. So no matter how difficult the battle the fragrance of the Christians is this fragrance of life and vitality. You and I are on the winning side, regardless of how aggressive Satan is, and hopefully we give him very little room in the life of the church, but we are that fragrance of God. And as Paul thought about this, he thought, who is able to manage that kind of ministry, which is a life and death, death ministry. We don't dare remain in conflict, he says. We don't dare let Satan have a foot in, in the door. Who's sufficient for these things? Look at verse 17. He answers the question. Only those who speak openly in the sunlight of God's truth. Only those commissioned or anointed by God with his Holy Spirit, which is you and I. Only those who speak with the awareness that God sees and knows everything about us, and only those who speak God's truths rooted and reaching others in Christ. By the way, on the where's the beef conflict, we drew close to each other. It was not easy. It was not without its pain. We drew close. We listened. We shared. I said, hey, I'm not so-and-so. He's actually 12 miles up the street. You can drive and see him on Sunday morning. But I am who I am by God's grace. And I will preach the word faithfully. And, and you're welcome to be here if you want. The majority stayed. Some left. And they went looking for the next pastor who would be just like that guy. We worked through the conflict and we spent another 12 years of ministry there. And that's good to know. Because it tells us the triumph, it comes through Christ and his faithfulness. It comes through repentance. It comes through forgiveness and grace and love. And that, honestly, folks, when we look back at that church, that was our Camelot church. That was the church where today we still have relationships, where we get together and we love each other and we enjoy all that God did through that church. And God wants that for every single church. He wants this aroma of snickerdoodle and actually... <sighs> he wants that for us. So would you pray with me this morning? And let's, that, let's ask God to continue to work in our lives. Father God, I think this passage actually was designed by you for this Sunday. Um, months ago, we didn't know we'd be in this text at this point, but Father, you did. And you've prepared Paul's experience and Paul's words to guide us as a church. 
And Father, we confess to you that we want to be transformed. We want to be a church that is joyful and loving. And Father, we have a lot of that here. But Father, we also realize that Satan just, just wants to get his, his hooks into the life of every church. And he pauses at the edge of the church stage, waiting for that moment to leap into the middle of the action and give his lines. Father, may we be people who are repentant. May we be people who are forgiving with grace and coming alongside to help. And God, may you, as our commanding king, give the triumph so that the fragrance of our knowledge of you in Christ is spread in this world today. Father, we want to be a church that loves well and turns the world upside down. We pray that you'd help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.